Welcome to Archiving AK, a podcast of the Archives and Special Collections at the UAA APU Consortium Library in Anchorage, Alaska. We're here to talk about what we do, what our researchers are up to, and to give you a closer look at the world of archives. This is Veronica, and I am one of the archivists at the UAA Archives. I'll be your host for today's episode. Today, I'm with Kevin Tripp and Greg Schmitz, audiovisual media archivists with Alaska Moving Image Preservation Association, otherwise called AMIPA. Do you want to introduce yourselves and tell us how long you've been with AMIPA? Uh, I'm Greg Schmitz, and I've been at AMIPA since about uh, 2006, so that would be 12 years. Okay. And I'm Kevin Tripp, and I've been with AMIPA since uh, spring of 2002, so coming up on 16 years, as hard as that is to believe. So what exactly is AMIPA? The history behind it? What do you guys collect? Well, uh, AMIPA, the Alaska Moving Image Preservation Association, as you stated, was founded officially in 1991. It's when it got its 501c3 status. It was created by mostly video producers here in South Central Alaska, who saw a need for a technical resource, really, to help preserve what they what the, what they saw as at-risk materials that they had all been working on. In part, them and other people had been producing and working on for the previous 10, 15 years. And when Alaska suffered the recession of the late 1980s. A lot of projects, a lot of funding, you know, went by the wayside, of course. And that's when they saw some of these collections basically being at risk, you know, um, just out of sort of uh, neglect and people not knowing what they were and having to get out of certain spaces and just to think that the, the typical things that put materials at, at risk, the types of institutional changes. So they saw, initially, they actually conceived of Amipa as sort of a technical resource, not really necessarily a collection or um, an archive per se. Um, they saw it as a way to um, reformat, transfer materials, you know, using equipment that not necessarily anybody would have access to. But once they started talking about preservation, they found people started handing them collections. And so the, 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 the archive part of AMIPA really kind of came about incidentally, initially, as a, result, as, as a result of them pursuing this general media sort of preservation um, mission. When I first um, came into contact with Amipa, they were across town over on Debar and Braga in the um, Grandview Gardens building that they were sharing with Out North, an arts agency at the time. And uh, they had a suite of, you know, legacy hardware that they could use to access a lot of uh, the legacy video uh, formats, as well as some audio formats and some film formats. And they had sort of a retrofitted vault in the basement that actually did a pretty good job of maintaining its climate. But it was a retrofitted basement and had wet pipes that ran through it. And of course, but our potential problems, you know. But overall, it wasn't a bad space, um, although they'd definitely outgrown it by the time, again, by the time I came in contact with Amipa. At that time, they'd already had plans to move into the UAAPU Consortium Library, where we are now. The library was 
uh, had a major expansion underway that was completed in 2003. I think technically we moved in in 2004, and uh, that's where we've been since, where we have temperature and humidity controlled vaults for both film and video and a suite of offices and a lot of the technical resources that we had at the old location plus a number that have been added since. That's another kind of a major piece of the puzzle as far as maintaining the type of institution that Amoeba is and pursuing the mission is not just the media collection itself, meaning film and video and audio recordings, but the legacy equipment that you need to in particular with all the variety of video formats, both analog and digital, that's ever-expanding the equipment you need to play all those formats back. And the older they are, the more rare the machines become, the more you kind of have to hoard them for spare parts. And so we have sort of an ever-increasing hardware collection that goes along mm-hmm. with the media collection. And that's actually kind of Greg's area. He could probably talk a little bit more about the hardware. A, a lot of our stuff... The hardware, actually, for some of the formats, I think we're the only ones in, in Alaska that can play some of them back. Yeah, we, we maintain uh, equipment for, I think, just about all the formats that we have in our vault, um, although in the case of the 2-inch quad deck, it's not currently functional, but we have it and enough parts to build a second one, and hopefully we'll get some engineers in at some point to work on it. We can do... Uh, Tape over time has gone from reel to reel to cassettes. So in the cassette phase, we have uh, Umatic, and we have D2, and we have Betamax, and we have Betacam, and we have VHS, and uh, um, One Inch, which is a reel to reel, the last reel reel to reel format, I, I think, and then audio, quarter inch audio, uh, in a variety of head configurations, two-track, four-track, stereo, mono. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, DV cam, yeah, that's right, the newer formats. I forget about the new stuff, Yeah, yeah what they were introduced in the 80s. <laughs> the, the new stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite type of media you like to work with? Not really. I like the look of one inch, um, but that's just an aesthetic thing. It's, it's right. no favorites, really. Um, well, it's just, I mean, no favorites with video. Right, yeah. Film is handy because it's so so easy to determine what it is. You know, you can just hold it up to the light and you get a pretty good idea of what's on it. Whereas video, take a lot of time and effort to learn what's on unlabeled or mislabeled videotape. Whereas, again, with film, just because the images manifest on the physical object itself, you know, you can just wind through it and look at it over a light box with a loop and see the mm-hmm. picture. So film has a real advantage from a, just a, a processing, processing and discovery point of view. Yeah, sometimes with the video, actually, they, if the tape's been recorded over, you'll watch the program content, you'll transfer what you thought was on the tape, and then you find that the really interesting stuff is at the end, and it's what didn't get wiped out when they recorded the new program over the old program. Right, yeah. So. And you can't rely on a label. Even a tape that appears to be well-labeled and meticulously labeled, you know, it could wind up being something else entirely or something else in part, like Greg said, you know, because somebody else recorded over it and may or may not have changed the label. And any magnetic media has that property of being able to be reused. So people did and do reuse them. And uh, so you don't really know what's on anything until you have actually spent 
the resources, the time to look at it end to end. Mm-hmm. So what types of collections do you have subject-wise? I know that's pretty broad. Yeah, yeah. Well, our mission is very is is a regional mission, mm-hmm. so we're very Alaska oriented. We have, you know, some of our, you know, like I said, Meepa was founded by producers, and so some of the original collections that came in were production collections. So the subject matter can be incredibly varied. There are the field masters, the production masters for putting together a show, as well as the finished edited shows themselves. You know, public television or some commercial television. Um, educational works that were done here at the university. There was, because at one time, the most probably the most technically advanced, as I understand it, production facility in the state was actually here at the university. In fact, those were a lot of the producers who were responsible for, for starting Amoeba. So some of the earliest collections were of that nature. Then we started taking in film collections, um, and some of those come from professionals or sort of semi-professionals as well as just you know complete amateurs you know essentially home movie collections and in fact some of the most historic content we have in amoeba really probably come to us mostly through what most people would think of as essentially a home movie collection or certainly an amateur collection it really ranges you know from very professional studio produced content again just home movies whether they're on film or increasingly as time goes by we're starting to see you know, home movies shot on video, analog video, and digital video is starting to show up in our collection as well. It's from all over the state. We're physically located here in South Central, where, of course, a large proportion of the population is. So we certainly have a substantial representation from this part of the state. But we um, are always looking for and receive um, collections from all corners of the state. You know, we have collections that have come literally from Barrow to Wrangell. In fact, one of the biggest private film collections we've received in some time. I'm just completing the inventory of it now. It's a very large collection of 8mm film that was shot by a guy in Petersburg, Alaska during the 30s and 40s. It looks pretty rich in terms of the content it's got, so looking forward to, to seeing more of that collection based on what I've seen from, from what's on the labels. It's one of the interesting things, sometimes, or quite often, the most well-documented collections we've received as donations are actually the amateur collections. You know, mm-hmm. people have their grandfather's home movies or their dad's home movies. Somebody in the family at some point, you know, very often before it comes to us, pretty meticulously will log or label what's on them, whereas very often production environments being the sort of high-volume, short time frame environments that they very often are. Uh, the tapes that come from those types of environments tend to be the least well documented mm-hmm. or the least accurately documented just because of the nature of where they come from. Yeah, uh, they'll say things like, do not erase. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we have one tape. It's on a format that we can't play back at the moment, but I'm dying to know what's on it because the only label on it is save until hell freezes over. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> what are your most used collections or what is the the subject you get asked for the most for reference requests well that's a lot of the in terms of subject you know Mm -hmm. things that you would you would expect you know how people are very oftentimes looking for kind of historic dog mushing footage Mm -hmm. to we had real spikes of course in the time that i've been at amipa we of course went through both the 50th anniversary of statehood and the 50th anniversary a few years later, of course, of the 1964 earthquake, both of which generated a lot of production, 
both locally and nationally. And we were contacted looking for, you know, new footage, interesting footage related to these subjects. So during those time frames, we were getting a lot of requests on those topics. And, you know, to some extent, those are ongoing, um, particularly the earthquake. seems to be one of those things that gets revisited fairly, fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. But there was definitely a real spike um, around the, the anniversaries, of course. One of the collections that gets a lot of attention and has from the very, you know, the whole time I've been at Amoeba was actually the very first film collection that was donated to Amoeba. It's a fairly large collection of 16 millimeter film shot by a guy named Steve McCutcheon, who had run a camera shop on Fourth Avenue for years, shot a lot of still photos um, that are. With the, in the collection at the museum downtown, but he gave his 16-millimeter motion picture film collection to Amipa. He went all over the state and shot a lot of different subjects. He was working sort of semi-professionally in the motion picture realm. He did some, I think, hunting and fishing guiding work, and like a lot of the hunting and fishing guides at the time, we've seen other examples of it, would sort of include in the package and, and the service uh, he would shoot film of the person's experience and then edit it together into sort of a souvenir film for them to have. And he has samples of some of those. They're all silent, but some of them have intertitles. So, you you know, and he produced other films like that with intertitles sort of about Alaska in general, right about the time of statehood. He was involved in politics to some extent at one time. He was in the legislature and he was also a delegate to the Constitutional Convention and although it wasn't part of his official responsibilities, I don't think it was something that anybody thought about. They thought about the audio recording of the, of the convention, and, and those recordings exist elsewhere. I believe Fairbanks, but I'm not 100% certain. But he sort of unofficially took his camera along and shot, when he had you know time, some motion picture footage, some black and white motion picture footage of what was going on, both when the convention was in session as well as when people were we're just relaxing, you know, in between sessions, reading the paper, playing ping pong, or a lot of mm-hmm. different things. And it's just a really unique document of that of that of that moment. And there's nothing like it anywhere else. Um, yeah, we're the only state in the country, I think, that has footage of its constitutional convention. Hawaii lost theirs, apparently. Yeah. So, and most of them, of course, don't have such a thing for obvious historical, technological reasons, but, but even the states that conceivably could have such a document don't. So, yeah, it's pretty unique. And it gets revisited with, with some regularity. And uh, we also had a collection, um, or a reel, it was actually a single reel we had restored under a National Film Preservation Foundation grant a few years ago that was shot by a Bureau of Indian and Affairs teacher named... Um, Clarence Rush, and he spent some time in interior Alaska in the 1930s as a, as, as a BIA teacher and shot some film when he was there. And we've actually received several collections like this from BIA teachers who obviously knew they were going somewhere pretty pretty unique and pretty different, particularly that, during that time frame. And very often times they would take motion picture cameras with them, if not still cameras. But this, on this, this particular reel does has a lot of just unique and interesting sequences of dog mushing and traditional fish traps and and different subjects that have been uh, this one reel particularly that's been restored has been used by a number of different filmmakers over the years regularly enough that we actually just submitted a grant to the same agency to have the, the balance of that collection re, um, restored as well and in fact that works underway in a lab um, as we speak. What types of users do you see? 
Well, we have, you know, again, going back to the origins and the purpose of Amoeba, I mean, part of why we exist is, is as a technical resource. So some of what we do is helping other institutions or private parties uh, who come to us with media or, you know, formats that they no longer access directly themselves. And so that's part of our mission is to be of, be of help in those circumstances where we can. And if we can't do it locally, we can connect them with reliable vendors who can. Um, so some of what we do is, is, is sort of a, like I say, sort of a technical service like that. So the people who, who discover in their office or in their agency or maybe in their private collection, you know, one of these video formats that has been um, obsolete for 20 or 30 years, you know, we can, we can help them get a transfer of it. Uh, and then we, and, and very oftentimes those types of contacts will, might turn into um, a donation of a collection. If it's something that turns out to be, of, you know, obviously Alaska related and of historic interest, um, very oftentimes, especially if it's on a format that's otherwise unusable to them, they're willing to, uh, to gift the original master content to, uh, to, to Amoeba. And then... But in terms of content user users, you know, sort of more traditional archival researchers, uh, they vary from they're very oftentimes researchers working um, either directly or indirectly for a production company. Very oftentimes out of state, not um, not in too untypically out of the country even. And then we, you know, we have developed mechanisms over the years and they've evolved with technology for how we can provide access to people who are off-site because we don't have very much content to speak of that's available online. Very oftentimes that's the very first question they have is they want to know, you know, what's the URL for your catalog so I can see everything you have online. And we have to disappoint them and tell them that <laughs> we, 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 can, we can help show them some content, but we're going to have to do it another way. Very oftentimes somebody calling, sometimes they're looking for something very, very specific, and sometimes they're looking for something that just sort of sets a tone for a historic time and place. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're local researchers, again, sometimes doing production work, um, sometimes uh, ac- more academic projects. You know, we do get students from the university from time to time and faculty members from time to time. Mm-hmm. And very oftentimes, again, those sort of are also sometimes technical support projects where they have some content that they've had for a long time, but it's on a format they can no longer use, and so they need that technical help to make it usable to them again. Mm-hmm. So um, those are sort of the general landscape of the type of users we get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do both of you like about being an archivist? Well, it's different all the time. I mean, you know, and, and there's the history aspect. You get this look at things. It's, it's just sometimes fun to look at, mm-hmm. at old films and old videos, um, both of events and just for the general context, the historical context mm-hmm. that the culture happens to be in right. uh, uh, at, at the point at which the, the video or the film was made. And you get to see it very often in, in repeated. So we'll, we'll see something from a place that was shot maybe in the 20s and then again mm-hmm. something maybe uh, from the 40s or the 50s and then possibly something even more contemporary from the 70s or the 80s, so you get to see the change. Over time. Um, Yeah, both in terms of what people point the camera at and the the landscape and the city and how how that's changed. Yeah, I agree. In general, you just don't know from what what each day is going to bring. It's never boring, Mm -hmm. and 
generally speaking, what you wind up working on in any given day, what I wind up working on any given day, is not the thing I thought I was going to work on when I walked through the door. Um, the phone rings an hour later, and all of a sudden you find yourself doing something else entirely. Right. I do wish, sometimes people think that we spend a lot of our time sitting and looking at, at, at old movies and, and videos, and I, I, I sometimes wish we did more of that than we do, but unfortunately, in yeah. meeting all the other, you know, responsibilities we have to keep the place um, operating uh, there's not as much of that that happens as, as really I, I kind of wish did you know so that we would have greater intellectual control over a lot of our content um, as it is it's sort of a ad hoc basis very oftentimes and we're oftentimes employing sort of a, a level of guesswork based upon our institutional knowledge of certain collections and what a particular researcher is looking for and, and and doing a certain level of exploration at that point um, based upon a specific request. Mm-hmm. But as time goes on, you know, you, you have, we, you know, we do build a bigger and bigger body of content that we know more and more about, but uh, there's certainly large quantities of content just that we have that is, that's entirely mysterious to us. Yeah, in the case of yeah. video, uh, and, yeah. until you play it. You don't know. You don't know what's there. Yeah. So, and there's no shortcut, like we said. You know, you just yeah. don't know until you've gone basically end to end in real time, mm-hmm. and it's just you know the resources involved in that are just um, out of reach. What's the oldest thing you have? The oldest unique thing we have yeah. um, is I used to say 1929, but I think we and it's still probably close. I think there's another film collection we have though that probably starts slightly earlier than that, um, mm-hmm. 1927 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the earliest unique objects that we have. We have some other, you know, copies of some things that go back earlier, you know, transfers of content from the Library of Congress that's Alaska-related mm-hmm. or, or the National Archives that's Alaska-related that we can provide access to with, you know, high-resolution transfers that we have available to us here locally. But as far as the original material... I think those are the earliest ones. We uh, we have a foot a, a film shot by a guy named Howard Cooper. It was sort of a travelogue, and, um, an amateur travelogue. He and a group of guys who must have been pretty well healed. They lived outside, and they came up on a big hunting trip in 1929. And it sort of it has some intertitles, so it has some has some narrative structure and. And it basically sort of captures their steamship trip up southeast and arriving in Seward and getting off the uh, uh, getting off the uh, the steamship in Seward and getting on the train and you see some footage from the train and some of their hunting trip in uh, uh, near Cantwell and uh, it's a kind of a great you know narrative view of pretty early tourism mm-hmm. uh, essentially in Alaska 16 millimeter black and white. Um, the other footage I referred to is a collection that was shot by a guy who was actually one of the pioneer families here in here in Anchorage, the um, the Frank Reed family, um, Frank uh, Ivan Reed, who was the, um, the the father of Frank M. Reed, who passed away just a few years ago. Frank Ivan Reed was his dad, and he was the man who, among other things, uh, built. The Aklutna Power Project mm. that they're actually um, just now dismantling. It, it, ha- it, has, it hasn't been in use for decades, but uh, they're just now dismantling it. But it was 
the uh, the prime primary power source for for the municipality during the uh, 30s and 40s, uh, and uh, it was pretty pretty significant construction project. And he he uh, I think acquired a camera basically uh, to 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 capture the, the the construction of it and all the various phases. And he went on to shoot some footage that's later. He kept doing it off and on throughout the course of his life and his fa- the rest of his family did too later on but uh, it's clear just from what the content and the date of it that he, he must have picked it up specifically for the construction project mm-hmm. so that's kind of where it begins in the late 20s mm-hmm. how do you break the archive stereotypes or do you break the archive stereotype personally? I think some of it's yeah. just even being a media audiovisual media archive mm-hmm. is relatively new in the the scheme of things for archives in general. I mean, AMIPA is sort of its namesake in part comes from an organization that we're members of, which is called AMIA, the Association of Moving Image Archivists, mm-hmm. which were, when when did that start? The it, 80s? It, it's, no, it started, I think, literally the same year AMIPA did, or very, very close. It had been, I think it grew out of a special, it grew out of one of the interest groups at the Society of American Archivists, mm-hmm. but when it became its own, freestanding 501c3 I think was literally the same year AMIPA was found yeah. sort of by accident because mm-hmm. I don't think the, the local folks who started AMIPA knew about AMIA at the time but they learned about it pretty shortly thereafter. So how do you think being an archivist in Alaska is different than being an archivist in the lower 48? Well a couple of ways I was thinking mm-hmm. about that one this morning uh, <laughs> in terms of equipment um, the equipment doesn't leave it stays here right so a lot of the equipment that we have has come to us from television stations, um, um, the garages of engineers who used to work for television stations, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, and that sort of thing. The, the downside is is that if I need a piece of equipment um, and I have to pay shipping or I have to go looking for it, which can make it very expensive to get things up here. And lots of times when you're buying used equipment, it doesn't always work. So... You're shipping two or three things up to get one that works. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the um, shipping is partly what's protected, what's already here. Yeah, that's why it, stuff doesn't leave. Stuff right. doesn't leave because yeah. by the time it somebody wants to get, get rid of it, um, it's not valuable enough because a lot of this stuff, this solar equipment in particular, tends to be really heavy, heavy and fragile, so mm-hmm. difficult to ship in any in, in the first place, and then so it's going to also be very expensive to get out of Alaska. And generally speaking, a lot of it doesn't have enough value, perceived value, for somebody to bother getting it out of Alaska. So unless somebody's throwing it in the landfill, um, it tends to still be available here, like Greg said, either in somebody's garage or basement or some storage facility somewhere. So we're actually, in some regards, as best we can tell, compared to a lot of our um, a lot of our colleagues in the lower 48, in a pretty good position with some of the legacy formats mm-hmm. in terms of equipment. The climate's also very kind to the media mm-hmm. compared to other places. Um, it's dry and cold um, for the most part, mm-hmm. and uh, especially the dry part, the, the lack of high humidity levels, um, uh, is, is, is good for both videotape and for film. Mm-hmm. So uh, the kinds of problems that you would see in Louisiana or Mississippi or even California with mold growth and, and uh, uh, damage to videotape because they've been stored in... Uh, warm, hot, humid places, uh, we, we don't see that. So, uh, um, in fact, with some collections, we can tell if the collection's been out of state 
um, uh, because it's not as in lots of times if you get a collection from the 50s and it's uh, say film and it's uh, uh, got what's called vinegar syndrome which is when the the base of the film begins to deteriorate um, lots of times they say oh well you know has this been in Alaska the whole time and the person bringing it will say oh no we lived in California for 10 years or something like mm -hmm. that so so often when if there are problems with the media it's an indicator that the media hasn't been here the whole time right. in fact I think the only collections we've received that really have been in bad condition have all come from outside you know either people have lived here for a while and then left the state or, or for whatever reason, the collection spent some considerable period of time somewhere warmer and wetter than Alaska. And because um, generally speaking, anything that's been here for all or most of its existence, generally speaking, is in pretty good shape relatively. Um, the other thing that's different, I think, about Alaska, I mean, obviously it presents some logistical challenges, you know, just because it's so large and there are so many communities that are off the, um, the road system. Uh, it can be challenging to work with somebody who's got a collection that might be trying to get it to you, um, especially if it's something really, you know, unique that you're really concerned about physically, mm -hmm. just getting it out of a community sometimes can be hard, even if they're on the road system. I know we've, we worked for a long time to try to get a fairly large collection out of Haynes, which, while technically on the road system, is still quite a ways away yeah. and small enough that it doesn't have any kind of even courier service. So there was really mm -hmm. no way that either the donor or us really felt confident about shipping it. And so it, it sat over there for several years, sort of in limbo until the right opportunity for somebody to pick it up and actually drive it back mm -hmm. came up, came up. And we've had other, you know, weird challenges like that as well. You know, there was a nitrate collection down in Wrangell for a while that we were trying to figure out how to get out of Wrangell. And because it's, you know, nitrate is, you know, in brief, the film, the old motion picture film stock that's highly flammable and so flammable that it's, you know, the Department of Transportation regulates it um, as hazardous material. You know, you have to treat it as hazardous material when you ship it. So getting it, again, getting it out of somewhere like Wrangell, it's only accessible by air or, or boat and um, with limited services and... Uh, it just, you know, presented logistical challenges to mm -hmm. get it out of somewhere like that. So things like that. You know, the other side of it, though, is, is because it is such a young state. You know, I know in the relatively short period of time I've been in the state, which is a little over 15 years, most of that time at the MEPA, I feel like I've just, you know, I've had the opportunity to meet or on some level kind of get to know mm -hmm. a lot of people who were relatively foundational in, in establishing the state yeah. and building it into the state that it became. Mm -hmm. And um, you just have a different relationship with sort of those foundational people mm -hmm. in the landscape of the state than I think you have in most most other places in the country. Right. Um, so yeah, like Vic Fisher, we have, yeah. <clears throat> we have footage of Vic at the Constitutional <laughs> Convention and then he'll walk into your I'll archive. Into the door. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so it's kind of definitely different in that way I think mm -hmm. um, sometimes feels like time travel right. um, <laughs> Willie Hensley yeah Willie yeah Hensley. yeah he's pretty cool yeah. mm -hmm. um, so what is the one thing you wish people knew about archives I don't know I, I, people you know the, the, the word the word is kind of it's used in so many different ways now I know when mm -hmm. I first became interested in becoming an archivist the word was pretty exotic and you know, you just didn't hear people use it or even recognize it in general conversation. 
but I think partly because of the way it's been used in IT and in related um, ways, it's now very widely recognized and used, although in a lot of ways that aren't necessarily the traditional way or the way, Mm -hmm. you know, professional archivists would recognize it. Um, Archival storage solutions. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. It's used, yeah, yeah, for one thing, in a lot of ways, it's, you know, sort of used as a marketing term to imply that something's going to last forever, um, when very often times it's quite something that's quite the contrary. Have you ever been asked for something ridiculous? Like, so we got a reference request in once and somebody wanted film of Alaska natives when the Russians were here, Mm. you know, like right after Russian contact, which film wasn't a thing then. We get that. Did you get something like that? Probably the closest thing might be the television stuff. And we were just talking about it the other day is that before the advent of videotape, Mm -hmm. um, the only way to record uh, television programs uh, was uh, on film, and mm-hmm. and that was very expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for especially local broadcasting uh, in the early days, there there are no videotapes. You can't go back and look at the right. news from 1962 because right. um, they weren't vid- they didn't have videotape. Um, so uh, we'll get requests sometimes. Oh, you got one for Romper Room the other day or something like that, uh, um, where they're asking about a local show, hoping. To maybe get some some uh, uh, recorded media from it, and there there just isn't any. Right. Um, the same thing with radio programs uh, uh, mm-hmm. from the the '40s and even the '50s before the general use of uh, audio tape recorders. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the only way to make a copy of a, a broadcast show would be to create literally a transcription disc, a record mm-hmm. of the the. Radio show, and again for local programs, that was expensive, and you had to have an engineer, and so it just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that, that probably the, the the most unreasonable kind of request is when somebody's asking for something uh, from from broadcast history uh, mm-hmm. prior to the uh, advent of the recording technologies uh, right. to yeah. record it. That's probably the most regular one. Yeah, they're yeah. just a, just mm-hmm. confusing over, you know. The, People have an expectation that if television existed, then there must be recordings. That from it must it. exist somewhere. But I think other than that, I think I think actually we did just once maybe get a request similar to the one that you that you described, where somebody was once, and they they I think that they knew it wasn't really possible, but they were still right. looking again for something that just sort of somehow evoked the Russian colonial period. But they yeah. want they really wanted motion picture or footage. photos. <laughs> I think in that same request they wanted film and photographs. Which yeah. yeah. I do remember once at one of the preservation conferences we hosted here a few years back, um, as just sort of an I think as an exercise, as we started sort of brainstorming from for, for a sort of a collection policy for Alaskan media mm-hmm. and like what you know what we would be looking for ideally things that we had or you know things we wish we had more of things things that were somehow missing that we didn't hadn't yet seen and we're just kind of you know brainstorming this list and um, um, I remember some, somebody in the room said absolutely anything from the Beringia Land Bridge <laughs> you know that, that, that would be an absolute we absolutely would take that collection um, so. well I want to thank you both for, for being willing to do this oh you're welcome and talking thanks, with thanks, us. thanks for having us on yeah you're yeah. welcome yeah we're interested to see how it how it develops
Me too. So to speak. <laughs> Thank you for joining us this month for Archiving AK. In the next episode, Archives intern Anna Lineweber will be interviewing us, Arlene, Gwen, and I on the archival profession. This is Archiving AK. Thank you for listening.